0: church our Lord said why are you persecuting me so Christ is still on the cross behold I stand at the door now if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him Buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McClain. That was You Are the Way by Steve Angresano, and you can find more information about him on my website at www.cathichack.com. Well, Happy Easter! Christ is risen! What a great and glorious season we have entered into. The Easter season, that's that magical time when new life is realized we have come through the desert we have come through the season of fasting and lent into the season of resurrection through obviously the pain and and sadness of Christ's passion and good friday remember we can never get to the to the easter glory unless we pass through good friday first so always keep that in the back of your mind well today we're going to be talking about the empty tomb but before we do that, let's, as always, begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O oh, great and glorious God, we come before you to praise your holy name, to thank you for raising up Christ Jesus, the firstborn, the firstfruits, uniting his humanity to heaven for all eternity. The tomb is empty, dear Father, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the defeat of death. This is what we all long for, look forward to, as your sons and daughters adopted, grafted on through the pain, through the suffering, through the death and sacrifice, and now the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I pray through this that all non-believers may come to faith and knowledge. I pray for them. I pray for them. O Holy Spirit, come and fill the hearts of Thy faithful and enkindle in us the fire of Thy love and send forth Your Spirit that we might be created and You might renew the face of the earth. This is my prayer, that those who do not believe will be filled with the Holy Spirit this Easter season. Those who doubt, those who doubt that the tomb is empty, those whose faith is so shaken and made so frail and weak by this wayward world who would whisper such deceitful lies and and just guide us away from this church. Please, dear Father, strengthen us. I ask this and the intercession of our Blessed Mother. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I pray all is well with you, and it's great to be back with you this week. I pray that your Easter was a terrific opportunity for you to go and worship our Lord at Holy Mass, and to just enjoy the time with friends and family members, and just sort of meditating upon the empty tomb the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what today I want to kind of mention is a little bit of the narrative of John's gospel that we heard in Sunday's readings, but also to meditate on the fact that this is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's a pretty big claim to say that Jesus rose from the dead, unlike how he raised Jairus' daughter or how he raised even Lazarus. Jesus raised those people, these are miracles. But in this case, in the case of our Lord, he came out of the tomb on his own. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big claim, and and there, even in the gospel, we see how the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests wanted a, a a contingent of Roman soldiers to guard the the tomb to ensure that the followers of Christ wouldn't come and snatch away his body, so that they could then claim, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're they're they they he resurrected, sure, uh, as they hid their body somewhere else, or that they would just manufacture the story later. Um, We're going to talk about maybe why that's not the case. I want to start with a paragraph from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 653, and it says, The truth of Jesus' divinity is confirmed by his resurrection. He had said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. The resurrection of the crucified one shows that he was truly... Ego ami, I am, the Son of God, and God himself. So St. Paul could declare to the Jews, What God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Christ's resurrection is closely linked to the incarnation of God's Son and is its fulfillment in accordance with god's eternal plan." Unquote. I like to watch the passion of the christ before easter sunday every year and uh I watched it of course again this year and and as always I was so blown away by its uh its visual appeal the depth and layers of all the uh uh theological context the the costume design uh, the acting, all of it, the music, it just comes together so phenomenally to share with us an insight into the, the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, we never stop to contemplate. What was the one thing that that really sealed the deal for Christ's death, his death sentence? Was it because he taught in the temples or the synagogues or uh, maybe healed people or any of that? No. The one thing that sealed the deal for Jesus was he claimed to be ego a me he claimed to be equal to God, claiming himself to be the Son of God. And in that movie, we see this beautiful scene, and he's standing there before the high priest Caiaphas. And then Caiaphas is, you know, asking for the witnesses to come forth and, uh, and to lay claim against this man, this condemned man standing there in chains with a, a bruised, blackened eye from taking his beating from the temple guard who arrested him in the middle of the night from the Garden of Gethsemane. And he stands there listening to all of these people come forth and say, This man, he he heals by the devils. This man, he works by the devil. This man, he, he, he claimed that he would destroy or destroy the temple and he would rebuild it in three days. And so Jesus answers none of these charges. He doesn't defend himself against any of them. It wasn't until the high priest Caiaphas orders him to speak, Are you... The son of man, are you the Messiah, the king, the Meshiach? This was a direct order from the high priest. And Jesus is a, a subject in this case. And he answers because he's been ordered to do so by the high priest. And even though this high priest may be the most sinful man in the world to, to hand over the son of God to be crucified, yet he does speak. Because he was ordered to do so. This reminds us of St. Matthew's Gospel where our Lord says, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, they sit on the cathedra, the chair of Moses, and therefore have the authority. And so you must do as they as they say but realize that they are hypocrites because they lay up heavy burdens, blah, 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 blah. So we see here that we recognize this authority, even though the office of high priest is, is currently occupied by a scoundrel who basically won it on an auction from the Roman Empire. And so when he's given a direct order, tell me, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus looks at him and says, Ego Eimi, which is the Greek words, I am. And this is what the catechism references there in paragraph 653. This takes us all the way back to Genesis and the burning bush there when Moses sees this uh, burning bush there not being consumed. And he goes there and hears the voice of God commanding him to take off his shoes for the ground he is walking on is holy. Now, Moses, I'm going to be sending you back to Egypt. And there you will go to Pharaoh and you will say to him, let my people go. Oh, but God, uh, my Lord, who am I to go and do that? I have a speech impediment. I'm nobody. I mean, they're, they're not going to believe me. Whom shall I say is sending me? Tell them Ego me," is sending you. Tell them I am who am is sending you. Jesus, what gets Jesus killed, what gives him the death sentence, is the fact that he claims to be Ego Ami, I Am, the great I Am. He is God. This, in paragraph 653, is a confirmation of his divinity, this resurrection. He stands there and says to the Caiaphas, You will see the Son of Man ascending upon the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Quoting from the Psalms, this resurrection is a confirmation of his divinity. I find that to be very powerful. And we go on in John's Gospel, chapter 22, to read about this, this occasion of the empty tomb on that the first day of the week, which was Sunday. And Mary Magdalene and possibly some other women are going there to continue to prepare the body because he was uh, executed on Friday and he gave up his spirit at the twilight, the uh, the hour of evening, about 3 p.m. And because the sun was going to be setting and they needed to prepare for the Passover, they were not allowed to to spend any more time working on this. And he had to take his body off the cross, so they broke the knees of the other two criminals persecuted or uh, crucified with him rather so they they put him in the the tomb that was there in the same garden cuz John's gospel describes Calvary as being a garden very very important a garden there is no mistake, there is no coincidence in the Gospel of John or any of the books of the Bible, really, but right now we're talking about the Gospel of John. There are no coincidences. And so if we read a garden there, then that's very, very important. The fact that the tomb is right there in the garden, very, very important. So they place his body there kind of quickly, and then now on the first day, the, the women come very early in the morning to to gain access into the tomb, and then prepare the body as is their custom to do so. And what do they find out? They find the tomb is empty. Mary Magdalene there finds the tomb empty, and the stone you know, rolled away. And so she runs back, and she tells Simon Peter and the others that the tomb is empty. And so Simon Peter sets off along with the disciple whom Jesus loves, John. John is that disciple. And there they they run, and, and John, being the younger of the two, runs ahead of him. And he gets to the tomb first, but he does not go in. No, he stays on the outside and looks in and waits for Simon Peter, who shows up, and he enters first. Very telling for us to, to hear that. Always in the Gospels, always in every single time, St. Peter is always mentioned first. Judas is always mentioned last. St. Peter is always given a preeminent role. It is his boat that Jesus speaks from. It is him that is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven uh, by Jesus in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. It is St. Peter who is told to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs. They're here in John's Gospel. So St. Peter here is given this preeminent role, this, this pride of place among equals, among the, the apostles. And John allows Peter first to, ...to enter the tomb. There they see the linen cloths, the, the handkerchief, the, the the cloth that was on his head... ...that they covered his face with. That would have covered his faith, face first on the, the cross. While Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus... ...they would have covered his face. This cloth that we believe was used to cover the head of our Lord... ...while well, he was already dead on the cross... We call it the Sodorium of It It is in Ovi-Edom, Spain, and it has a, a, a sort of documentation that that traces its history all the way back to first century Jerusalem. It's very powerful, and it contains um, blood stains on it. That, by the way, match the stains in size and configuration of th- those found on the shroud of Turin, and the blood type has been tested, and it is of the same blood type. So they've matched up the uh, these blood stains, and they match perfectly, one to the next. And so this 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 cloth that was put on his head when Peter enters the tomb, there in John chapter twenty, he notices that this head this Handkerchief is rolled up and placed on the side, and and our our Lord's body is not found there. Okay, and so the tomb is empty. Now Mary stays behind. She hangs out behind as as Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loves. Now clear the the area. They they go back to the other apostles to report what they found, and there Mary we hear. In uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 11, says, quote, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now let's stop there. That takes us up to verse 15 of St. John's Gospel chapter 20. Okay, let's review really quick. Where are they? At the tomb. Where is the tomb? In a garden. And here's this strange man, who is Jesus. But Mary Magdalene thinks it's, what? A gardener. And what does Jesus call her? Woman. Woman, why are you weeping? Woman, why? Who do you seek? So here we have a, a man who is a gardener in a garden, and a woman being called woman. What does this remind you of? Of course, it reminds you of Genesis chapter 3, and to actually more to the point, Genesis chapter 2, where in Genesis chapter 2, our Lord gives Adam the job to keep and protect, to till and care for the Garden of Eden. So he's a gardener, if you will. And what does Adam call Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24? Woman. This is on purpose. Again, no coincidence is found in John's gospel. We know that John starts his gospel off, you know, quoting automatically, right out of the gate, taking us right back to the creation narrative found in Genesis chapter 1. We also see how through, all the way up through the wedding of Cana is a retelling of that creation story. Just like in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, culminating uh, from creation, six days of creation, culminating in a Sabbath day, a wedding feast between Adam and Eve, we also see in John's gospel, a recreation Six days of creation culminating in the wedding feast of Cana, where the only people named are Jesus and Mary. Mary being the new Eve, whom he calls woman on the cross. Woman, he calls her woman there in in the wedding feast of Cana as well. But here, Mary Magdalene is called woman in a garden. Adam, the new Adam, As St. Paul calls Jesus, the new Adam is standing in a garden, being called a gardener, and he refers to Mary as woman in a garden. Now, this is on purpose. This is absolutely on purpose. John was using Genesis as the backdrop of his gospel all along, so nothing has changed here. And so we have to go back to the Old Testament account to get its proper context. Now, what's beautiful about the passion narrative of our Lord is how much it falls parallel to the Genesis chapter 3 narrative on how the test of Adam in a garden, which we've talked about many times in our study together on a father who keeps his promises. This is ripe material here. In Genesis chapter 3, it was the serpent who enters the garden at that critical juncture between Adam and Eve and their one flesh union which we read in Genesis 2.25, and then in Genesis 3.1, the serpent comes onto the scene and frustrates that experience. And he gives them a test, and we said before that the the Hebrew word nahash for serpent means not just some garden snake, but a venomous, monstrous creature used elsewhere to describe Leviathan, described in Revelation 12 as a, a dragon, a creature of some you know, venomous and, and overwhelming brooding force and presence, not a garden snake. And here, bullying them into making a choice. He was going to get his. But Adam was commanded in Genesis chapter 2, as we said, to keep and protect, to care for that garden, to protect its inhabitants, i.e. Eve. So he was supposed to stand in between any intruder who might be threatening their lives, their very existence, and their immortal souls from these intruders to protecting Eve in the garden. But no, he didn't. He stood quiet. He stood silent in a garden by a tree, allowing Eve, the woman, to do all the talking. And she was beguiled, and she ate. And Adam ate too, giving up his soul to protect his flesh. But our Lord, in a garden, there at Gethsemane, across the Kidron Valley, there he, he wept with loud cries and lamentations to the one who was able to save him. He cried out to, to God, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. He cries out three times. And in the end, he didn't cry out because he doubted so much. Maybe, maybe in a humanistic way, that's possible. But he cries out to show us the difference between him and Adam. Christ and his humanity suffered knowing he was going to suffer through the cross, the torture of the whipping, the abuse, the mocking, and then eventually the agony of drowning in your own bodily fluids, and asphyxiation because you couldn't raise up your body on the nails to breathe. He knew that was coming, and that obviously would have caused great anxiety and stress and fear. And yet still he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And there in John chapter 18, when the, whole, the cohort comes out to arrest him, and St. Peter draws his sword to, to defend Jesus and defend them off, he says... Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me to drink? No, I will drink it. Unlike Adam, who was a coward and refused to save his soul, to die for his spouse. No, I will die for my spouse, the church. That's the power of that image that's being brought to mind here in John chapter 20 by giving us the new Adam and a type of the new Eve found here in Mary Magdalene. When we see in a garden, the tomb is empty if Adam had only trusted in the resurrection of God if he had only trusted himself to God, to cry out to the one who was able to save him, maybe he could have been coming from an empty tomb too, and we would have been all saved from original sin. But no, now we all inherit our original sin. And God came down and dwelt among us. John chapter 1. He came down and tabernacled among us, taking on flesh, that he might then therefore go forth, and his hour might come, and he might die and therefore be resurrected and eventually ascend into heaven to reconcile man to God, because Adam was too cowardly, to stand in the breach between the Nahash and Eve and the garden. This is why the garden is so powerful and so purposefully given to us here in St. John's Gospel. Now he goes on, St. John, here in John chapter 20, starting in verse 16, he says, Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, "I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God." Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, "I have seen the Lord," and she told them she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, what's interesting is here is Mary lays hold of Jesus. It's like, I found you. And she like you can almost picture her grabbing a hold of his leg and not wanting to let go. But she has to let go. Because Jesus says, I must ascend to my Father. I must go to my Father. Now go and let go of me. Let go of me. Do not covet me like this. Let go of me. Go and tell my brethren. Now, they're no longer his servants. He's no longer their master, as he says, in the upper room. No, now they are friends. Now they are his brethren. Okay, we have a dawn of a whole new era. They were hiding as cowards in the upper room, and they will continue to be there until Pentecost comes. But now we see the dawn of a new era through the resurrection, the defeat of death. Our Lord, unlike Lazarus, unlike Jarius's daughter, who went back to normal earthly lives and lived earthly in earthly bodies, now the resurrected body of Christ is the first fruits, it's the firstborn, it's what we all have to look for, as our catechism tells us. This is what we're looking forward to the resurrected body. It's a glorious body. And God, he takes on this flesh, and he, he kills it, and then is resurrected, and then it's united to God in all eternity in heaven. He brings our flesh to a whole new level through resurrection. And that's the power of that. We we need to not lay hold of him and hold on to him and covet him that way, but let him ascend to his Father. And therefore, we can receive that Manifested glory through the work of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, really quick, in and and St Paul's work in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I highly recommend you go back and you reread this entire section this entire chapter because St Paul is dealing with here the doubt of the resurrection and St Paul he he witnesses to this he attests to this this is around 56 AD well after the fact some 20 years after the resurrection St Paul is testifying to the, to the 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 sheer importance of the resurrection to Christianity in, itself he says uh... quote uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Powerful stuff. He goes on to say in that same chapter, in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ isn't raised, then all of this is bunk. This is why the National Geographic Channel and the History Channel and Discovery Channel, everybody else, is desperately trying to prove that the tomb is not empty. But I am here to tell you, the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. Easter has come. Christ is risen from the grave. Well, that's going to do it for today's Easter episode of Behold the Man. Be sure and stop by the website for more information on the intro song and for links at www.catholichack.com. If you get an opportunity, I could really appreciate your support by subscribing to this podcast feed of the show on iTunes. You can do that through a link on the website. Until next time, I'm praying for you, and I hope that you'll pray for me as well. Christ is risen. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground.